Welcome to the Center for International and Regional Studies at Georgetown University in Qatar. These podcasts are part of a research initiative titled Building a Legacy, Qatar FIFA World Cup 2022. Welcome, everybody. My name is Professor Daniel Reich, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome Simon Cooper, Financial Times columnist and best-selling author of football books such as Soccernomics and Football Against the Enemy. We are talking with him today about his new book, The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi and the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club. The interlinkages between Qatar and FC Barcelona and how we can relate Lionel Messi's recent transfer from Barcelona to Paris Saint-Germain to the FIFA World Cup 2022. Thank you, Simon, for being with us today. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Simon, in the moment your book came out, Lionel Messi transferred from Barcelona to Paris Saint-Germain, a club that is of particular interest for us in Qatar, since it's owned by Qatar Sports Investment. What did you think in that moment? And do you regret that Messi is part of your book's subtitle? I'm very grateful to Messi for transferring on the day that my book was launched, in effect, with an extract in my newspaper, <laughs> Times. So the extract came out in the morning. It was the first sort of official presentation of the book. And I think at that morning, both Messi and I thought he was going to stay in Barcelona. And then that afternoon, Barcelona told him he had to go. So enormous publicity, biggest story around Barcelona in years. So I'm only grateful to him that I got a huge amount of, you know, newspaper and television interviews as a result of his move. Thank you, Leo. <laughs> Let's talk about the content of your new book, The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi and the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club. Could you share with all of us who had not yet the chance to read the book, its main arguments and what motivated you to write the book? Well, I grew up in the Netherlands. I'm not Dutch, but my father works at the university there. And so when I was six or seven, we arrived there and I began playing football on the street. All the kids on my street played an evening match. And then I joined a club and I became a big soccer fan. And Dutch football was my football always. And Johan Cruyff was the great hero of all Dutch football players and fans of my generation. And over the years, I came to realize that Cruyff wasn't just a great player. He was also the man who really invented modern football. The high pressing, attacking, playing on the other team's half, positional changes, fast interpassing football that we see from the world's best teams like Liverpool or Bayern Munich or Italy this summer is the football that Kreuf and Rinus Michels invented really in Amsterdam 60 years ago, nearly 60, and that they brought to Barcelona in the 70s and then implanted there when Kreuf was coaching the 80s. So that's really the start of my fascination with Barcelona. And in the book, I wanted to tell the story of really how Barcelona became great. First, thanks to Kev with these brilliant ideas about football. And then also he has brilliant ideas about how to raise young footballers. And he revolutionizes the Masia, the Barcelona Youth Academy. It produces around the year 2000, around the turn of the millennium, the best football generation that any youth academy has ever produced. Messi plus seven of the players who win the World Cup with Spain in 2010 players like Xavi and Yesta, Gerard Pique. And so I wanted to tell the story of this greatness and I wanted to understand Messi as, you know, so not just say he's a magician, he's incredible, but really to look at how does he do it on the field and what kind of person is he off the field to understand this man who I think none of us have understood very well before. And then when I was writing the book, because the club gave me great access and that was another reason to write it. They opened not all their doors, but many of their doors. So as well as interviewing players and uh, club presidents, 
coaches. I also interviewed the people who keep the club ticking day to day. The club set up interviews for me with nutritionists, psychologists, doctors, youth coaches, marketing executives, everyone inside the club. And so I wanted to give a portrait of the modern club. But as I was writing it, I realized this club is falling apart. It's growing old and they've run out of money. So I thought I was writing a story about greatness and I did, but it's also about the rise and fall. Yes. And you already mentioned a bit uh, about the book writing process and how you conducted your research. Could you elaborate a bit uh, on the met methodology? I mean, I think it's mainly interviews you, you conducted. Yeah, I mean, I started with, for a start, I've been collecting my notebooks as a journalist since 1998. Wow. And in those notebooks, I have many interviews with Barcelona players and coaches of the past, many visits there. So I interviewed Kev, I interviewed Neymar, Pique, people like that. And so I was able to draw on more than 20 years of past research, which is helpful because in journalism too often we don't have any memory. Everything is very short term. And then the club, which is incredible, has been incredibly helpful to me and didn't never ask me to read or censor anything beforehand. They, they just gave me free hand. I would write to the press officers and say, I'll be in Barcelona a week then, a week then. I kept coming back. Could you set up interviews for me with X, Y, and Z? And I'd arrive and then they'd drive me around and I'd often do five or six interviews in a day. And so it's speaking to lots of people behind the scenes. And then I'd more or less finished the research when the pandemic broke out. I only went back once more during the pandemic. But that gave me time to read many of the books and articles written you know all over europe in spain but also in germany very good books france holland uh, trying to put together the assembled knowledge of european writing of the best writing on barcelona of the last few decades fc barcelona is very popular in qatar and in the arab world i taught before in lebanon and many of my fans were barcelona fans do you have any explanation for this why particularly in the arab world there's so much popularity of barcelona I'm not sure if it's particularly in the Arab world. I think it's everywhere. I mean, in the book, I say that they have 250 million or so social media followers, which is the best metric we have now for the popularity of a club. That's more than any other sports club in any sport on earth. It's more than all the NFL teams of American football combined. It's slightly more than Real Madrid. So Barcelona just is the most followed most popular sports club in the world that I think will change in the coming years as they become less successful, but it is right now. Mm -hmm. And talking particularly about the connections between Barcelona and Qatar, uh, Qatar Foundation became at the end of 2010 the first shirt sponsor in the club's history. The sponsorship agreement was announced only a few days after Qatar was awarded the FIFA World Cup 2022. And another interesting connection, the coach of the Qatari national men's team, Felix Sanchez, was from 1996 until 2006 a Barcelona youth coach before moving to Qatar and working at the Aspire Academy, coaching the under-19 and the under-23 national teams, before then being appointed as head coach of the national men's team in 2017. What can you tell us about the connection between uh, Qatar and FC Barcelona? Is this something you looked at during your research? Yeah, I mean, the choice to go with a shirt sponsor at all, and especially the sponsor, uh, essentially, that represents a state that is not a democracy, that is a, a very controversial monarchy, was a very 
controversial step among Barcelona's 150,000 or so members, still sees it was much debated. And Qatar was chosen because it paid the most money. That's what Sandor Rosé, the president at the time said. And it was a very big decision for a club that had never had a shirt sponsor in its history. And I think for the Qataris, it wasn't satisfying to be focused on Barcelona because although it was the best club of the era, it doesn't really give outsiders much power. You can't buy Barcelona in the way that you can buy Chelsea, you can buy Paris Saint-Germain. So in 2011, I think, essentially the Qatari state through its sports investments wing buys Paris Saint-Germain and there they have much more of a free hand. They can really take over the club, run it in their own way, which they could never do at Barcelona. So the, it was never a marriage between Qatar and Barcelona, but the kind of partnership was more arm's length than the partnership mm. of Qatar and Paris Saint-Germain. As to the story of Qatar's coach, I think that's very typical of what happened all over the world the last 10 or 15 years, that Barcelona clearly led the world in terms of playing style and in terms of youth academy between, let's say, 2005, 2015. And in that era, countries and clubs around the world hired Barcelona coaches at all levels to do a Barcelona, in a sense, to Barcelonize the Qatari Aspire Academy and the national team. It works better in some places than in others, but the story of football the last 10 or 15 years is everybody copied Barcelona and that deprived Barcelona of its specialness. Mm -hmm. And for the sponsorship, Qatar Foundation was later replaced by Qatar Airways. And now I think it's Rakuten, a Japanese company. Yes. So there's no connection um, uh, on, on that level anymore. Um, so, um, I mean, talking about Messi um, do you and, and Paris Saint-Germain, do you think by transferring Messi and other star players like some Italian national team players uh, now, is Paris Saint-Germain replacing Barcelona as the world's greatest football club? I mean, the world's greatest football club is what we call them in the subtitle of my English British book. And I think it's true in terms of, it's still true for now, in terms of Barcelona's international allure and popularity. And Paris Saint-Germain is not there yet. Paris Saint-Germain is still regarded with great skepticism by football fans around the world. I think unfairly, they think it's a kind of manufactured club, a club without a history. I mean, I've lived in Paris these last 20 years. Uh, my sons are huge Paris Saint-Germain fans. Many of my friends in Paris are Paris fans since childhood. And I can say that this club has an enormous local popularity, especially in the suburbs of Paris, where the lower middle classes and the working classes live. It's really as popular there as Arsenal or Chelsea are in London, or even as Barcelona are in Barcelona. It, um, it's a real club with 50 plus years of history. And although it's now buying its way to success and it's run by Qataris, that doesn't diminish the club's traditions and history. But internationally, Paris Saint-Germain doesn't yet have that kind of name. It can go fast though, because I, I, I was stunned by the number of Instagram followers, for example, that Paris gained straight after the Messi signing. Of course, if you follow a club on Instagram, it's not the same as being a lifelong fan of the club who will always only care about that club. That's completely different. But still, in terms of international attention, Paris has never had as much as it does now. Yeah. So since you live in Paris, and it's so interesting what you just shared with us, um, so how is uh, attitude within Paris? Are most people grateful for the investments into the club? 
Yeah, I mean, Parisians are very excited on the whole about Paris Saint-Germain. Yeah. And, I mean, Paris is a city that thinks that it should be the best in every field of endeavor. And it never has been in football. I mean, the city of Paris, no club has ever won the Champions League. And so now for the first time, you have a Parisian football club, which is à l'auteur at the level of what Parisians expect from their football club. You know, when I arrived 20 years ago, it was a really rubbish team. It's got a violent atmosphere at the stadium. There's one stand with all white fans, a lot of skinheads, one of whom tried to assassinate Jacques Chirac the year I arrived. The other stand was um, the ethnic minority youth. And these two stands would fight with each other and shout at each other. There are almost no away fans in French football. So it was not a great place to go. And so Parisians mostly are very happy with this. Other French clubs are also quite happy with the Qatari investment, partly because Qataris have also taken over much of the TV rights of French football. They pumped a lot of money into French football. Other French clubs benefit from having a top club that fills stadiums, that is going to boost television rights packages massively now that we have the best player in the world playing in the French league. So Paris Saint-Germain has helped French football in a way, but of course is much resented by fans of other French clubs who see it as an emblem of Paris's arrogance and um, deep pockets and so on, which Paris has always been unpopular with the rest of the French population. I, I, I feel like a, a PSG's image improved this year when uh, the discussion on the Super League happened and uh, they would not join the group of clubs uh, such as Barcelona that wanted to create this league separate from UEFA Champions League. So uh, I, I assume this happened at the end of your uh, book research uh, process, but um, what's your take on on, on, on the Super League discussion and the different positions uh, Barcelona and PSG took. Yeah, well, when the Super League was launched, which is really Juventus, Florentino Perez at Real Madrid, and then the English American-owned clubs, United, Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal, driving this. Barcelona came on, I think, because they were desperate. They already had this deepening financial crisis that I just talked about in the book. And they thought, well, if we do the Super League, we get 300 million euros or something like that right away. And we need that. And then we can keep Messi next season. We can solve the current problem. And I think that's as far as they were thinking. And the interesting thing about the clubs that were not so excited, Chelsea, Paris Saint-Germain, Manchester City, which dropped out, Paris said no to it. And Manchester City, Chelsea dropped out immediately once the controversy began is that these clubs are owned by billionaire foreign owners who are not in football to make money at all. And the Qataris don't want to earn money from Paris Saint-Germain. It's not a business. It's not a profit-making enterprise. They want to put money into these clubs, just like the Abu Dhabi Royal Family at Manchester City or Abramovich at Chelsea. These are guys who want to sports wash their reputations and have a bit of fun, amuse themselves, amuse their friends by owning a football club. So they don't need a Super League, which just annoys fans and... Um, might make more profit for these clubs, but they're, they're just not interested in profit. For them, the Super League, they, you know, Chelsea and Manchester City had to go with it because if the other big clubs are there, you want to be there too. But it was not what they wanted. So um, at the very end, let's talk about the, the World Cup. I mean, some people also uh, say that uh, a PSG transferred Messi because they want PSG to win the Champions League uh, prior to the World Cup. The World Cup will be in November, December, uh, so in the middle of the Spanish, French, German, English season. So what kind, uh, as an experienced football writer, what, I mean, this is, I, I think, also the first 
time in your uh, professional career that you witness uh, a World Cup in the middle of the season. So what what type of World Cup uh, do you expect? And do you think maybe Messi will be able to lift for the first time in his, in his life the World Cup trophy? So what do you expect from the World Cup in Qatar? I mean, to me, the most unusual thing is not that it's happening mid-season, but it's happening in one city. And I think potentially that could be very enjoyable because you can go to two matches a day. You don't have to travel. You don't have to make these exhausting journeys. Like I've made a past World Cups where you fly hundreds of kilometers from one Russian or Brazilian city to another, and then you fly back at five the next morning. So really a World Cup for those of us who cover it, this is a somewhat selfish perspective, can be quite brutal. When it's all in one city, everyone is there. You see people all the time. It's much more social, much more um, fun before and after games, much more. Um, and even the thought of going to two World Cup matches in a day is very exciting. So I think having all the games in one city, Doha, if Doha can actually support all those people, uh, that could be quite good. I think that, I mean, Qatar wants to improve its reputation for a World Cup. Many countries have tried this in the past. It tends not to work very well because you get years of coverage for the World Cup about things that are wrong in your country because you have the World Cup. It's a reason for media to cover you. So the reason we've talked so much about the deaths of construction workers at World Cups and the treatment of migrant workers in Qatar is because they have the World Cup. If they hadn't got the World Cup, this would still be happening, but without any attention from the world. So a World Cup doesn't necessarily improve the host reputation at all. So that's an interesting aspect. Lastly, can Messi lift it? I mean, the four last World Cups have all been won by Western European teams, different Western European country each time. The only non-European non team to make the podium finish first, second or third at the last four World Cups was Argentina with Messi in 2014. So this is a very Western Europe dominated affair. This is the region that plays the best football where teams and coaches and players learn from each other every week in the Champions League. They get better every week. And the rest of the world has been put at a huge disadvantage in terms of tactical learning. And so you see at World Cups that the pace of Western European football is just shocking to teams that play against them. Argentina is not at that level. And Messi will be, what, he'll be 35 next November. I don't see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so of course, as a German, I hope for Germany to win the final, um, maybe against Qatar, since um, <laughs> I'm working there. So we will see. Um, but um, Simon, this was terrific. Um, I uh, tremendously enjoyed my conversation with you and I wish you good luck for the book. And uh, I enjoyed your previous publications and good luck for your personally and professionally and thank you very much for talking to us today. It was a great pleasure. Thank you, Daniel.